listening to the Momnificent Podcast. This is the place where we help parents live a happy, healthy life with their kids. We're going to show you how to connect with your child and help them even in their most difficult moments as we hear from experts in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Karin Jakubowski, an international speaker, public school principal, and former struggling student. The Momnificent Podcast equips parents with science-based strategies to help you live a happy, healthy life with your kids. Welcome. I am very honored to welcome Dr. and Professor Ellen Langer, who is a full-time psychology professor at Harvard University. She was the first female to gain tenure in the psychology department at Harvard. She's written 11 books. She has four distinguished science awards and the Liberty Science Genius Award. Dr. Langer, welcome to Momnificent. Thank you. And where are you enjoying Momnificent from today? I'm in Dartmouth, Mass. Oh, fun. Massachusetts. Is it getting cool there? Are the yes, it is. No, it's cold. But yesterday was warm. It keeps changing. Oh, it's, are the leaves are the leaves changing yet? Uh, the ones that I'm looking at right now, no. But no. when I drive back to Cambridge, yes. Along oh, the isn't that so funny? So, <laughs> well, Ours you know, I mean, there's no reason to think that the leaves all over the world are going to change at the same time. So I know, but you're a little bit north of Delaware. We, we, we yeah. usually get it like the first uh, week of November, but it's such a pretty time. And I love asking this question. What have you done recently that you haven't done in a while that just brings you joy? Uh, nothing that I haven't done in a while, but um, everything I do brings me joy. That's part of my, my way of being in this world. You know, that um, I'm an avid tennis player, not a great tennis player, but I enjoy the game. Um, I paint, I write, I teach. Um, so I'm always doing something and um, it all brings me great satisfaction. Creative and active. Um, so Dr. Langer, you are described as the mother of mindfulness and you wrote a book 33 years ago called Mindfulness. Can you help me and my audience understand your definition and how you define mindfulness? Sure. When I started uh, studying this, I was right in the camp that's become dominant now, which is uh, meditation. Um, but shortly after that, uh, we broke away. And um, actually, you know, so there are a lot of people who have difficulty meditating. They can't sit still for two minutes, no less 20 minutes. And this is a nice alternative. All it is, Karen, it's amazing when I tell you, all you need to do is notice new things. And when you notice new things, the neurons are firing and 40 years of research shows us that it's literally and figuratively enlivening. When you notice new things, you come to see you didn't know that thing you thought you knew as well as you thought you knew it. So then your attention naturally goes to it. And an alternative to this, uh, uh, this is a way of coming to see that we don't know. Um, if one adopted just one mindset, all other mindsets are mindless, this one will be helpful, which is an appreciation of uncertainty. Everything is changing, everything looks different from different perspectives. So you start off knowing you don't know, so you start off paying attention. Most of us need to be persuaded. So whatever it is, you know, a person you're close with, perhaps living with, notice three, five new things about them. Uh, you go outside, notice three new things about the environment. And there are always things you didn't notice before. And then you set up and uh, take notice. Um, so what happens is when you 
actively notice new things that puts you in the present. And there, there are lots of people, it's very cute, I think, that they say, be in the moment. You know, that's nice, but it's an empty instruction. Because when you're not there, you're not there to know you're not there. This is the way to be in the present. You notice new things, then you become aware that perspective and context, these things matter because everything is always changed. You can have rules and routines, but they should only guide what you're doing, not overly determine what you're doing. And interestingly, that the uh, experience of this act of noticing is the experience of engagement. It's the way we all wanna be. You know, you, you were asking me, what have I done that was exciting to me? Well, if you do this, everything becomes exciting. So that, you know, so people have a mistaken impression because I think they think in terms of meditation that it's hard, um, that um, it takes a long time. This, you don't take yourself away from the world. You put yourself very much in the world and actively notice it's energy begetting, not consuming. Mm -hmm. So it feels good. It's good for you. We have data showing that when you're more mindful, people like you more. For many reasons, it improves your relationships. It improves the, it leaves its imprint on the things that you do. And so you get, you know, enormous bang for the buck, so to speak. Yes. And, um, you know, we have data that you live longer, you're happier, you're healthier, your relationships improve, um, virtually everything. You know, as you said, I've been doing this for over 40 years. That's a long time, an opportunity to test many different aspects of this. And the one thing you just mentioned reminded me of that orchestra where they took two orchestras. Do you want to describe that real fast? Because that was so sure. fascinating to me. Sure. The, this falls under the, the category of how when, we're, when we do what we do mindfully, somehow it leaves its imprint on the product that we produce. So we took symphony orchestras and divided them simply into two groups. For one group, we said well, they were all going to play the same piece of music. And we said, remember a time you played this, that you were pleased with your performance and just replicate it. For the mindful group, we said, make it new in very subtle ways that only you would know. Now, it, it's important to realize that they're playing classical music, not jazz. So the differences had to be tiny, all right? Or else, you know, the ultimate sound would not be very good. So we recorded these pieces. And the first thing we did was ask the musicians how much they enjoyed playing the piece. And overwhelmingly, they preferred playing it mindfully because you're there, you know, you're, you're no longer being a robot, which most of us are much of the time. And the other, uh, then we took the recordings and we played them for people who knew nothing about the study and they overwhelmingly preferred the mindfulness piece. And so, uh, yes. Uh, so we have lots of studies like this. And uh, so I can say with whatever confidence one can muster for research that um, it's, uh, it leads to better products, better so, things, whatever we're doing. So I could go to school on Monday and tell my teachers, do what you always do, because teachers, a lot of it is kind of like what we do, but, but, but maybe I can just share with them just just think of one thing that only you're going to know the difference of to change and and that's going to create this, well, this difference, yeah right? you know, i mean i think that you know they should orient the the whole day a little differently you know when i uh, since i lecture and as you mentioned i teach harvard students and i, I don't make my lectures on my powerpoints uh, so straightforward that the next time i give the course i just show the powerpoint or give the same lecture 
you know, I, I always leave it with some, what was I talking about? And so I have to reinvent it. And that feels good to me. Um, so I enjoy the teaching. And as we've just said, the students enjoy learning better that way and learning okay. more. I'm so excited to share this. So then people have often asked you, through growing up, why are you always smiling? So why is that? And what did you tell them? Okay, so uh, the, the story goes that when I was young, I was always smiling. And then people would say to me, why are you smiling? And I immediately get rid of the smile. You know, now I've grown up, I understand all this a lot better than I did when I was a little kid. And my response, I stand tall and I say, well, why aren't you smiling? And the, you know, what's behind this in some way is people um, take as a given that life is, you know, it's stressful, it's hard. And so that's the base rate. And so if you're smiling, that says something good just happened. I think people need to readjust. And uh, for many reasons, possibly we can get into some of them, that one should assume that everything is going to be good. You're going to feel good. And, um, one of, the, one of the ways of getting to that point is to recognize that outcomes, consequences, events don't make us feel anything. You know, they, um, people think that things have to be stressful. Events aren't stressful. What's stressful is the view you take of the event. If you open it up and take a more mindful view, the stress goes away. Now, um, what people also don't realize is that they have the capacity to uh, understand any situation in multiple ways. And so let's say, for example, that my internet goes out right now. So, oh my God, we couldn't, so what, really? You know, people need to distinguish between a tragedy and an inconvenience. Big problem, and, little problem. Right, exactly, yeah. And what that would do then is give me more time to do what I'm gonna do as soon as we finish this. And, you know, and for you as well. So is it a good thing or a bad thing? So when you recognize right now, everybody, if it's good, I have to have it. If it's bad, I have to run away from it. When you recognize that you determine whether it's good or bad, you can stay still. And then you have the choice to behave as you want to and experience what you want to. So as I was researching a ton of your work to prepare for this interview, what you yeah, just shared, what you just shared, I actually put into practice this week and I, and I wanted to ask you more because maybe you can just help me because as a principal I got parents upset with the mess the quarantine I mean it I feel like it is so much more stressful that I just almost can't even take it and then I listen to you and you're like well it's all in your mind and it's just a thought and I mean you're probably gonna say it better than me and all of a sudden I was just I was able I forget what I did and what you said but I was able to disconnect from it and I didn't let it kind of overwhelm my entire world so what's your yeah. thought on maybe a parent well, who's feeling yeah. stressed? Tell us that difference because well, it was huge. Yeah. yeah, no, I think the first thing, you know, I have um, a series of one-liners that have been culled from my research over all these years. And one that many people find helpful is what I said a moment before. Ask yourself, is it a tragedy or an inconvenience? Because, you know, oh my God, the dog ate the homework. Oh, I missed the butt. These are not in the scheme of things, big deals. And they all provide hidden opportunities if we just decide to look for them. So you take a breath and you say to yourself, is it a tragedy? And you say, no, it's not a tragedy. Okay, and then you look more closely at it. And if you ask yourself, what are the advantages? You know, everybody thinks uh, situations come prepackaged. This is good, this is bad. And then the question is, well, why does somebody 
not get crazy in the situation that in and of itself is bad. And that's because they understand it quite differently. You and I go out to lunch, the food is delicious, wonderful. You and I go out to lunch, the food is awful, wonderful. I'll eat less, presumably. You know, um, and uh, it, you know, it's not lying to oneself. Um, everybody gives lip service to everything is both good and bad, but what they really mean by that is that there are good things and bad things. Let's say there are 10 things that, you know, and you have six that are good, four that are bad or the reverse. So on average, it's either good or bad. What I'm suggesting is that everything in equal measures is simultaneously good or bad. And an important part of this is uh, concerns people. You know, we have a sense that, oh God, people, there's some, they just, you know, they're crazy making. And if you recognize, nobody gets up in the morning and says, today I'm gonna to be obnoxious, um, inconsistent, you know, whatever else that bothers us. So what are they intending from their perspective? And the idea is that behavior always makes sense from the actor's perspective or else the actor wouldn't do it. I so, love that. Karen, Karen, you drive me crazy, you're so inconsistent. That's because you're flexible. I drive you crazy because I'm so gullible. That's because I'm trusting and so on. And it turns out no matter how we describe somebody's behavior, there's an equally strong but oppositely valenced alternative. Whatever you think is negative, there's a positive in there if you just choose to look. So if I wanted to get you to stop being so inconsistent, and that's what people are trying to do to each other all the time, uh, change their behavior, um, since you're not from your perspective being inconsistent, you're being flexible, the only way I'm going to get you to change is to get you to stop being flexible. And, and chances are I would decide, and there's no reason to do that. Flexible is nice. Trusting is nice, you know, and so on. Yeah. And I love that. You said, um, the what is it? The behavior of the behavior actor? Make, the behavior makes sense from the actor's perspective. I love that. Wait, say it one more time. Behavior makes sense from the actor's perspective or else the actor wouldn't do it. That was such an aha for me uh, with my, my parents, my, my teacher, sometimes with kids. Yeah. Oh, that was so revolutionary when I came, when I stumbled across that. It must have been like a month or two ago. Oh my gosh, I just love everything you're saying. So I also want to touch on this past summer, I got an email as a principal that you or your group or, or, or um, your team were putting together this mindfulness pilot for kids I mean, what was that? Yeah. And you, you just mentioned maybe well, it just came yeah, out. So, How did that start? What did you find? Okay, so um, it occurred to me that um, the major perpetrator of mindlessness is uh, our schools. And, you know, I mean, to make this clear, uh, Karen, I okay. believe that virtually all of us are mindless almost all the time. It's not the rare event. Now, again, you don't experience yourself being mindless because when you're mindless, you're not there. So um, I decided that it might be time to put our efforts into trying to change schools. And so one of the things that we did was just to, you know, since I don't teach young kids, except for my grandkids, um, the question was, how would this be appreciated by them and so on? So we did a couple of... Um, uh, Zoom meetings with whoever, you know, whomever wanted to attend, and uh, they seem to enjoy it. You know, they like knowing that their teachers may be wrong. So, so, so what, what did you do? You just like taught them, taught them, well, taught I, them about this yeah. at a kid level? 
Yeah, now what I did was I describe it at first and then I have um, this 12 year old who is the daughter of a colleague of mine. We worked very closely together and then she taught the rest of it. She and I wrote a book um, on, to help kids become more mindful, which is free by the way on uh, Amazon. And anyway, so, so the, you know, yeah, the, the point is that um, every time you try to learn, well, let me step back a little since you like kids' stories. So this is going to seem ridiculous to you, but nevertheless. Okay. Go for so it. My grandkids are um, these twin uh, boys, five, uh, they were six at the time, six now actually. And they're at the hot tub, and I say to them, uh, Do you want to get the boogers out of the hot tub? So it's a made up word. And um, so they say, sure, they realize it means whatever's not supposed to be in there, leaves or an acorn or whatever. Okay, the next time they come over, they say, Grandma L, can we get the Gujars out of the hot tub? Now, what that meant to me, you know, all of a sudden I had, as you were describing all of your ahas, that you can be sure that there was nothing in their world between the visits to remind them of the word Gujar because it was a made up word. You can also be sure they didn't go home saying Gujar, 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 so they'd remember. But they remembered it. They remembered it because it was meaningful to them. And the point is that, um, uh, you know, I think that for you, me, for most people, probably over 95% of the things we know, we didn't memorize. And yet that's the way schools teach us to learn. And so, uh, that's, um, you know, so that's part of what this is all about. When I'm trying to show people how mindless they are, I often stop my lectures with a very simple thing, and this would be good for you and your teachers. How much, Karen, is one plus one? Two. Okay, and everybody says that, they're sure of it. Then they cast aspersions on me. What's the matter with her? <laughs> well, it turns out one and one is not always two. If you add one watt of chewing gum plus one watt of chewing gum, one plus one is one. You add one cloud plus one cloud, one plus one is one. You add one pile of laundry plus one pile of laundry, one plus two. In the real world, it turns out one plus one doesn't equal two as often as it does. Now, most people are, are not aware that there are different number systems. And when you get one plus one equals two, it's from a base 10 number system. If you used a base two number system, one plus one would be written as 10. Oh my God, it's so complicated. You know, so the point is in some sense, the only sensible answer to virtually any question is it depends because everything is changing and everything depends on context. And all the information, most of the information we're taught in schools is context free. When people are asked questions, they typically, uh, the teacher and the student comes to understand this, expect to give a single answer. It very, you know, the kinds of changes that I'm trying to instigate in schools are very simple. So instead of a single answer, get multiple answers. When um, we've rewritten textbooks, and so the typical textbooks gives everything in absolute, you know, here are the three reasons for the Civil War, for example, and so on. So we changed the textbook to make it conditional. So instead of saying is, it would say it would seem like from one perspective, could be, perhaps. And these things keep the information lively. So if I had taught you initially that one plus one, you know, is often two, I don't have to say anything else. Next time someone says to you, how much is one plus one? You say, well, you know, make it clear to me what the context is. Um, it also is the case that 
as soon as you give information conditionally, could be, um, people start to think, well, when might it not be? And for whom is that true? And so on. And even the driest material that's uh, taught in school becomes more alive and interesting. And doesn't that create a, a mindset that becomes maybe more creative? Well, yeah, I think the notion of mindset and creativity, these are opposites. You know, I, I um, you know, a mindset is holding things still. When you're mindful, it's a, an active ongoing process. It's dynamic, not still. But, you know, uh, creativity, when I wrote um, the first book on mindfulness, that I could have called it and thought about calling it creativity. But then I realized everybody has, most people have mindless notions of what creativity, it's sort of mundane creativity. But when people think of creativity, they think of a final product. And, you know, so if I right now uh, derived Einstein's theory of relativity, the world is not gonna say, oh, wow, Ellen Langer, you're a genius because Einstein did it first. But for me, it would be a very mindful activity. So interesting. So it's a, a focus on process rather than outcome. But as you already noted with the uh, orchestra study, it typically results in a better product. Yes. Oh, this is incredible. Okay, I'm shifting just a little bit here because I know you work with businesses and everyone's trying to find the work-life balance. And just last week, one of our directors at our district office was like, there's no such thing as work-life balance. So I would love you to talk about the work-life integration yeah, you mentioned yeah. and what that okay, looks like. Me, okay, so uh, work-life balance is, of course, better than work-life imbalance, right? <laughs> okay, but... Um, what it suggests is that work has to be stressful. You know, that's what I said to you when we started talking. Work has to be stressful. Life is stressful. Schools, nothing has to be stressful. In fact, everything should be, you know, approached almost as if it's a game. Now, um, you know, so to have work-life balance means I need to have something good to counteract the bad things at work. And what uh, I, one of the advantages I think of all the Zooming and uh, during COVID now is um, people are often doing their work from their home. So for instance, as we're talking now, my dog just walked into the room and you know, he could start barking in a minute. So what, right? You know, and so you come to see that these things just don't matter. And so I believe one should be the same person um, at work and at home, wherever they are. Now, that doesn't mean you should be a nervous wreck wherever you are, <laughs> you know, but you take the, the best of, of uh, how you're feeling. And as I said before, that should be the baseline for how you feel. And um, one of the things that, that makes people so upset is, you know, somebody might be speaking to them, talking down to them or uh, bullying them or uh, whatever. At all ages, this happens. And I've spoken to many women in business who have been belittled and so on. And what I say to them is that nobody who has it together behaves that way. What that means then is when you're feeling that thing in the pit of your stomach because the person has mistreated you, turn it around and feel sorry for that person. Because nobody does that out of strength. And then everything reverses. Mm -hmm. So um, one doesn't one doesn't have to be stressed at work. An example of, and also is um, 
you know, I do I have, have spoken a few times at Google. Google has, and it's a wonderful company. I mean, as far as for employees working there, they have um, a ping pong table. And I said, I know you think that you've mastered all of this, but let me tell you, the fact of the ping pong table says to people that they need something fun because work is unpleasant. And so what you want to do is reverse all of that. Now, there, to take this into a slightly different way. So there's this wonderful uh, video that everybody should watch. It's called Piano Stairs. And it was done someplace in Scandinavia. These people, you know, you go down to the subway station and you always have stairs. And right next to the stairs is an escalator. Everybody takes the escalator. Then what they did was lay down piano keys on the stairs. So as you're going up, do, do, do. In a very short time, everybody leaves the escalator and starts taking the stairs. And, you know, so, but when I teach this to my students, what I tell them, you don't have to wait for somebody else to make it fun. Mm -hmm. You know, when I go up the stairs, so I'm singing and, you know, and so. So good. I'm telling you, you are forever changing, literally, how I face my work. You, you are, you, you're, you're the biggest change that has ever, I've ever experienced. I'm so excited about this. Um, okay, and so now what happened in the study where maids were told to just think yeah. differently about their housekeeping? Okay. What? So this is, this is a little, you know, it, it's hard to go 40 years, some odd years in the short time we have, but um, I, let me introduce this. I, I was at a horse event and this man asked me, if I'd watch his horse because he was going to get his horse a hot dog, which of course was ridiculous because horses don't eat meat. He came back with the hot dog and the horse ate it. And that's when I knew that everything I knew could be wrong. One and one is two, horses don't eat meat, and so on and so forth. All right, so then I started thinking more about health, and I've been studying health also for 40 years. And I came up um, with a different view of health, a theory of mind-body unity. Right now, people think they have a mind, they think they have a body. The question is, how do you get from this fuzzy thing called a thought to something that just, now let's put them back together and treat it as one. And if you do so, wherever you put one, you're necessarily putting the other. So the first study we did with this was uh, to take old men to a timeless retreat that we retrofitted to 20 years early. And we had them live there as if they were their older selves younger selves rather speaking of past events and the present tense and so on that's the famous counterclockwise study i can call my own study famous because if you uh, google uh, the simpsons go to havana they describe the study <laughs> at any rate and the results were remarkable in a period of time under one week these men in their 80s their vision improved their hearing improved their strength improved and they look noticeably younger Okay, so that was the first of these studies, mind, body, and the second one with Ali Crum was um, uh, with chambermaids. So we asked chambermaids, how much exercise do you get? Oddly, uh, they don't think they get any exercise because they think exercise is what you do afterward. Okay, now, if we compare these women who are exercising all day long, with people who are socioeconomically similar but are not exercising, they should be healthy. Turns out they're not. Okay, so now we take these women, half these women, and we simply teach them that their work is exercise. Making a bed is like working on this machine at the gym and so on. 
So now we have two groups. One group thinks their work is exercise. One group doesn't know their work is exercise. Will you find, you know, are they eating any differently in the course of these three weeks that are going to follow? In, at the end of these three weeks, no. Are they working any harder? No difference. The only difference that we could ascertain was one group saw their work as exercise, the other not. The group that saw their work as exercise lost weight. There was a change in waist-to-hip ratio, body mass index, and their blood pressure came down. Wow. Is that remarkable? Yes. Yeah. Then we have, we have a host. I mean, I have you know 20 or so studies now testing this mind-body unity. Mm. Incredible. Uh, the power is right here inside us. Right. To make right. that change, that difference. You can or you can't, and it's just that knowledge and awareness of it right. to really change your life. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's amazing. All right. So what's one final word you want to leave our listeners with today that you hope we never forget? Um, what you want to do is exploit the power and uncertainty. And that you have to accept that you don't know. Nobody knows, so it's okay not to know. Everything is always changing. Everything looks different from different perspectives. And the act of noticing, this act of noticing is literally and figuratively enlivening. So what is the one word? Mindfulness. And we're hearing more of the uncertainty with COVID than we ever had before. Yeah, but what we don't realize. Yeah, no, but the good thing, Karen, (laughs) people don't realize. Exactly. That's exactly right. Our lives just got so, I guess, to your point, routine, expected. This is what always happens. What we would do is we would hold it still in our minds and think that the the outside world was being held, was still. But everything is always changing. And that's the good thing that makes everything potentially very exciting. That's amazing. Oh, my gosh. Okay, you have supercharged my day and my week. I will never be the same. Thanks to you. Like, this was so incredibly valuable. I I can't wait to continue uh, learning and growing from you. And I'm going to play this interview over every time I feel stressed and be like, wait, wait, Ellen said it's not real. (laughs) And there is something here that I'm missing. Um, So thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time to share this with you. Thank you for all the years of your work. And I'm so excited to help share this to help change and influence even more lives. Um, So thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. It was fun. Well, that's all we've got for this episode of the Momnificent Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be honored if you would subscribe and rate if you really liked it. I know wherever you're listening right now, it might not be the best time to leave a comment, but feel free to leave a question, a review, or a comment at any time. And until next time, remember, don't worry, be happy.